Hey guys, this is Jessica with PT Below the Waist. I'm super excited to be back. I took an extended break with quarantine and with everything going on, but I've had a lot of fun building new content and figuring out where I wanted the podcast to go, um, like what direction, and just new people to interview. So I'm excited to show you guys that stuff over the next few months. Um, You may recognize this intro is a little bit different than before. Reason being is Jamil has moved uh, back to her hometown. And while she, you know, she's right now she's taking a big break from the podcast. She may join me for an occasional episode, but for the most part, I will probably be um, the one interviewing and running the podcast. So I will definitely miss her. She is obviously a great friend of mine. And while I'm super happy for her in this new transition, I, of course, will miss her that so and then moving forward guys email me if there's any topics you want me to talk about or interview people about I'm always looking for new ideas I get you know messages on Instagram that spark an idea of who I can interview or topics and it's just really helpful and really cool to feel like I'm collaborating in that way but you can email me at ptbelowthewaist at gmail.com or Instagram is really easy. That's probably the social media platform that I use the most. And it's just at ptbelowthewaist. Um, but of course, we're on Facebook. You can find us at ptbelowthewaist. And we do have a Twitter account as well. Um, and you'll hear, I know you guys hear this on every podcast, but please consider leaving us a review. It is how podcasts get seen and get promoted and, um, you know, searched for and things like that. So on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get our podcasts, the only one that I'm aware of that we're not really on is Spotify. But, um, so talking about today. So today we'll be um, interviewing Jessica Real. She is super great. I had a blast talking to her. You can really just tell when you're talking to her and like when you guys listen to her how passionate she is about what she's doing and then just along with of course she is just also super knowledgeable so I won't give too much away I'm really excited for you guys to hear it All right, so I'm here with Jessica Real, and I am super excited to be with her today. She is here to talk with me about vaginismus, so I just want to say thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So how long have you been a PT? How long have you done pelvic floor? How did you get there? Yes, um, so I am in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I've been practicing for a little over 10 years. I actually am one of those unique pelvic PTs that jumped into pelvic PT as a student and just completely fell in love with it and ended up switching my career path actually from what I had intended when I went into PT school, um, totally switched it around to pelvic health and then have never looked back. So I've been treating pelvic floor dysfunction since, uh, well, for a little over 10 years. Nice. Okay. So I'm actually in that journey too. And so it's, I feel like I have to tell that to people too, that I didn't start with like the ortho background or like when I had kids, but it's been interesting for like continuing education purposes for me. I'm like, I have to go back to ortho quite a bit and I have to really scope out of the pelvis for a lot of those things. So that's cool to like hear that that's what you did too. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm the same, you know, I, I'm very, very big on recognizing that the pelvic floor lives within the body And I don't think we can treat pelvic floor dysfunction well if we solely focus on the pelvic floor and don't look at the whole person. However, I do think, and I know that this might come across a little bit controversial because I know there's a lot of push for therapists when they're new grads to to do orthopedics and to have experience in that before they specialize in pelvic floor dysfunction. And we all have our own biases, I think, with how we, our journey, what that looked like getting into it. But for me, I feel like, the most important thing is that people follow their passions and what they have. And for me, I didn't even see it as a choice. It was this passion that fell onto me and I felt like I had to pursue it. And so I think sometimes we can do a disservice to new grads when people push them away from following their passion if their passion is leading them towards pelvic floor dysfunction. 
Um, and I also kind of think as a little aside, I think it's the only specialty within um, physical therapy that people would say, oh, you need to do orthopedics first before you do that. You know, like no one says like, oh, you want to do vestibular? You really should do orthopedics for a while. You know, oh, you want to do neuro? Well, make sure you get that experience. You know, people don't say that. And and so I don't know why people are so are discouraging sometimes to new grads who are passionate about pelvic health. I love that. I think that's such a like interesting perspective on it because, well, one, you're like 100% right that people do not say that about other niche specialties like wound care. They don't say go do acute first, you know, kids, they don't say go do neuro first. Like, oh yeah, all those things are helpful. But if that's what you love, you should find out more about those things. Like, you know, that's kind of, I had the same story. I did it as a student and I loved it and I dove right in. I got really lucky. And I, I feel like I've been able to get my ortho experience, like attuned to what I need. Like granted, yes, if I had stronger those skills from the beginning that would have been helpful but I've also been able to do that as like a physical therapist like throughout my career so I think that's really cool like to have that perspective yeah and I also think that there's no shame in referring out when something gets beyond what your skills are you know I mean I'll be the first to say that the further you get away from the pelvis the less my orthopedic skills are, uh, you know, able to help the patient as well. And so I work with orthopedic therapists who are amazing at treating neck pain or TMJ dysfunction or the feet. And, and I'm super happy to refer a patient out and have them help the patient with that piece while I'm helping them with other pieces. Um, and I think that collaboration is usually the best way for patients, period, to get better. So Exactly. Yeah. Well, so what do you see most at your clinic? Um, like, do you, is there a certain population like you see more pain or you see most postpartum or bowels or what, what do you see mostly, I guess? Yeah. So I um, started my own practice actually back uh, a little less than a year ago. And so my practice is Southern Public Health in Atlanta and we're a pelvic health specialty practice. And so we treat all pelvic floor dysfunction um, diagnoses. So I treat all people um, with everything from pediatrics, constipation, to sexual pain, to um, bowel dysfunction, bladder dysfunction, and really everything in between that you can think of. Um, And that was really important when we started our practice is that, you know, we wanted it to serve everyone, all humans. And so we really try to be a very inclusive clinic. Um, That being said, with our population, we do tend to see, we do tend to see fairly complex people. And so we see a lot of um, complex pelvic pain conditions. We do see our fair share of postpartum um, individuals. We see people with, a lot of people with bowel dysfunction. I, I actually write an educational blog on pelvic health topics and have been very fortunate in that it has gained some traction. And so I get a good reach with that. And particularly, I think there's so many people struggling with bowel dysfunction that um, I, I find a lot of people will find us through that. Um, that and tailbone pain for some reason they're, they're like, I wrote both of those posts like in 2015 and they're even still now the most popular posts I've ever written. Um, but we tend to see a big mix and then we actually do see, we do see a good amount of sexual pain and we see a good amount of vaginismus like we're going to talk about today. So, um, so it's just a huge gamut of everything. That is one thing that I will say, you know, if I talk to other PTs randomly, like at a conference or just like, I don't know, randomly when you could go out, we're recording this during COVID. So obviously I'm not seeing people, but um, they would be like, oh, that's such a like specialty. You do much not have a lot of variety. I was like, I have a ton of variety. Pelvic floor PT is this wide. My hands are huge when I said it. It's huge. (laughs) Like there's so much variety within this. I, I personally do not get bored with it. I really enjoy it. So that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Absolutely. And the more people expand their practice, the more you don't get bored. I mean, I can have a day and see, um, a, you know, an eight-year-old who struggles with constipation. And then my next patient could be a, a man who had a colostomy and is having some issues with that. And then I might see someone who's having sexual pain. I might see my postpartum individual who's having some cesarean scar issues. And then I have my really chronic pelvic pain cases. So it's a huge variety, which keeps it fun and exciting, I think. No, I agree. That's awesome. But okay. So you mentioned vaginismus. And now, like, if we were just going to, as, as something you see, just some basic definition, like, what does vaginismus mean? Like, what is that? Oh. So vaginismus is a subset of the um, genitopelvic penetration disorders, I guess is technically where it's categorized. But really it's, you know, when you think about um, pain related to 
something inserted into the vagina. And so if you think about, um, this could include someone who is having insertion for part of their sexuality, but it can also include um, exams, it can include tampon use, um, and or anything really. And so vaginismus in particular is um, pain that is specific to insertion into the vagina. It often is accompanied by, but not always, muscle spasm, and particularly it is including that outer one-third layer of the vaginal muscles. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned this. There that you said it often, but doesn't always include spasm. So would you say that someone like you don't have to have the contraction uh, upon penetration to classify it as vaginismus or is it like a ah, tomato, tomato, it doesn't really matter. Oh, that's a really interesting thing. And this is where we were talking before we got started today to both of us, a little bit nerdy, loving the research and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I think we used to define it as um, pain with something inserted that is accompanied by muscle spasm. However, a lot of the stuff I've read recently says often accompanied, but not always. And so I don't think it's required that it has muscle spasm, but definitely pain with something being inserted. And often a, um, it, it can be so significant that insertion is not possible for many individuals. Um, and that can be with exam. It could be an inability to use tampons. It could be an inability to have sex. It can mean a lot of things for people. Right. And I think that's like a takeaway that, because the goal of this podcast is also, it's for patients and then therapists alike, but, or for healthcare providers, I shouldn't even say just like right. therapists, but it's not just like inserting a penis. Like it could be inserting a toy for, for, you know, for, for lesbians, for, it could be inserting a gynecological exam for the 80-year-old lady who's maybe not sexually active or tampons for a 12-year-old girl who's not sexually active. And I like that specificity. It's insertion. And I think, you know, this is not to sidetrack too much, but I think it's important that therapists, um, for those of you therapists who are listening, that when you are working with patients, if you're at a clinic that gets referrals from providers and you see vaginismus on the referral, you know, not to make assumptions on what that means to the patient, because I think we do a disservice to patients when we start making assumptions. And so if you assume that when you hear vaginismus, that that patient has pain with a penis inserted into the vagina, like that, that's a huge disservice. You might have a patient who their problem is tampons or, you know, that they're not partnered with someone with a penis and they have, but they still have pain when something's inserted in the vagina. So I think it's important to ask really open-ended questions to your patients when you're working with them so that patients can tell you the problems they're having so you can address those specific problems. No, that's perfect. Because that's actually my next question is like, okay, when I see the script, because in Texas, we don't, we have direct access, but it's poor. <laughs> but like when I see a script that says vaginismus, I think they have pelvic floor tension, most likely. But is there something else or something different that comes to mind when you see that referral? Or just if someone says, I've been told I have vaginismus or something like that? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing I think, and this is going to sound really cheesy, is I just, when I see that, they just have my heart. Like I just am filled with a lot of, uh, just a lot of um, emotion for them because I think that vaginismus is a really challenging thing for people who are experiencing it. And it can be incredibly overwhelming. It can be impacting to their relationships um, and, and just to their sense of themselves. You know, um, I have many patients who might feel like, gosh, like I can't use a tampon. What's wrong with me that I can't do this? Or everyone else seems to have no problem when they go get their exams. But for me, it's the worst experience of my life. And so they just have my heart. And I think that when I see that, I, I, I do tend to see overactivity in the muscles, like you mentioned. Um, but I just think I try to get myself before I see them into this framework where I can try to just be this catalyst for them in their healing journey and, and to partner alongside with them so that they can actually feel empowered and hopeful. So I think many, many people going through this can, can, it it can just be so incredibly overwhelming. Um, And I think I mentioned this treating a person with vaginismus for me is the reason is one of the major reasons I became a pelvic PT. Um, so yeah, I was very fortunate when I was a student, I did a rotation with Darla Cathcart, um, who was in Shreveport, Louisiana at the time. And she, funny enough, is faculty now with me with Herman and Wallace, which is oh. the most fun you could imagine. So we have an amazing time teaching in the pelvic series and, um, and just, it's so fun. But when I went to my rotation, I was not 
I didn't know everything that pelvic PTs do. I didn't know. I, re- I remember the day she told me that we were going to treat someone with constipation. And I was like, wait, we can treat constipation? Like it was just mind blowing to me. But I remember so clearly it was um, it, kind of in the middle of my rotation. We had a person come to us who was dealing with vaginismus and she had had several relationships that had failed because of that piece, um, which of course makes you question the partner that she was with at the time, you know. Um, but, um, but she'd had several relationships end and just was, it was very impacting. And she was in a relationship at the time and wanted, just wanted so badly to be able to have sex and not have pain. And I still remember, and it gives me goosebumps, like even now thinking about it, every time I tell the story, it does of her coming in and she sat down one day and she starts crying and she was like, I had sex and it didn't hurt. It was amazing. And, and so I think when people are dealing with this, I think that we just, as clinicians can play a really important role in their journey and actually helping them. And, um, or we can actually end up being a negative person in their journey. And, and so I think it's important that people take it seriously and really take the responsibility that they have seriously when they're working with people who are dealing with this. Absolutely. I've had to tell myself that too, just like, this is bigger than like my bad day. This is bigger than the paperwork I have waiting after this. But also I've realized too, that like, this kind of comes with my next question, but I've realized it's so important for my patients that have pain, whether it's vaginismus or rectal pain, or it's men that have pain or people that have pain in their penis. But like, I have found that I need to tell people like, you will not be like this forever. Maybe I'm not the only person that's going to help you, or maybe I am, but like you, we will figure this out. Like I will, we will guide you in the direction and giving them that validation that they didn't cause this. That's not in their head. There's things they can do to get better and empower themselves well, you know, is really important. And at first, I think as a student, I thought, well, like, well, duh, why else would they come to PT if that wasn't true? But it's like telling the patients those things and like reaffirming that for them is really important. 100%. And I think the challenge in particular for this population is that oftentimes they may have had experiences with other healthcare professionals that made them feel like it was in their head. You know, they have been told things like there's nothing going on anatomically to cause this for you or, or they're told this terrible advice of, you know, go, go drink a glass of wine and that'll help you. And you just need to calm down. I've had patients who are told, you know, I think you're just so anxious and, you know, don't worry because once you have sex, you'll realize it's not that big of a deal and you're going to be fine. And, um, and that just is so harmful to people. And, um, so yes, I, I think that I, I agree with you. I always tell myself and tell my patients too, that I, while I can't guarantee that I will be the person who is, you know, your key to helping you get better, I can guarantee that I will partner alongside you and I will help you find the path for you in, in helping you get better because it sometimes is us, but it sometimes is not. And that's okay too. Exactly. Yes. But you know, it used to break my heart when patients would be when, kind of like you mentioned this, it's like, they would say, why did this happen to me? Like, how is this happening? And I used to have a really hard time answering the question. And I'll say now I kind of say, you know, well, for vaginismus specifically, I, I I will explain like primary and secondary vaginismus. Some people are born with it. But for me, I feel like with pelvic floor dysfunction, with pain and tension and things, it's like we don't always have a mechanism of injury. But I'm just kind of curious, how do you explain that with in regards to vaginismus? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of similar to a lot of overactive pelvic floor type conditions. You know, I think that um, I, I always tell people that we know there are certain things that can be related to pelvic floor muscle overactivity or to vaginismus. Um, and so this could be things like a history of having urinary tract infections or yeast infections. It could be a history of painful vaginal examinations or a um, a painful pelvic procedure. It could be an injury around the pelvis, prior surgeries. It can be related to birth. It can be related. uh, We we know there are are cases that were might be related to something in their upbringing that may have led to a protective response around the vagina. And so it could be because of something from a religious standpoint that was put on them or a cultural standpoint that was put on them. Um, and but, but we know that the pelvic floor plays this role in terms of protection for the body. And it's really interesting. And so I think when 
we also know that there are cases of trauma, that if an individual has experienced um, a physical trauma, sexual trauma, that can lead to it. But the thing is, is that, like you said, sometimes we can look at this whole list and there are patients who are like, oh, like, I have nothing on that. That doesn't describe me. I mean, so sometimes we just don't know. And sometimes someone might have something on this list, but that's not really why for them this is happening. It's, you know, everyone's just a little bit different. But I do think that it's important to think about how the pelvic floor responds in a protective way for a person to any, and I, I use the term globally of threat, but any threat or perceived threat around the pelvis. And threat can be related to infection. Um, it can be related to stress, like a stressful job or a stressful familial situation. It can be related to a history with pain. Um, all of those pieces, um, it can be related to trauma as well. Um, but there was a really great study, and I don't know if you're familiar with um, the the uh, Vander, I think, it, my gosh, now it's, I believe in me, Vanderveld 2001, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, and it's a study that looked at the threat response and the pelvic floor. I think it was okay. 2001. Um, so really? yeah, go ahead. It's a beautiful study. And so it, it basically what they look at is they, um, they were comparing people with vaginismus to people who did not have vaginismus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had them watch a series of clips. So they had them watch a neutral video clip, a clip that was deemed to be physically threatening, there was a sexually threatening clip, and then an erotic clip. And what they thought was that the people who had vaginismus would have an increased response in their pelvic floor, that their pelvic floor would be much more contracting and guarded than the people who did not. But what they actually found is that all people showed a guarded, protected, contracted pelvic floor during both a physically threatening and a sexually threatening stimulus. And so I share that with patients a lot, that study, because I think that it can help people understand why their muscles could be responding this way. If we think of threat as anything that might cause the body to react in this stress response, this kind of fight or flight response, um, that sometimes people can have this response to the muscles with so many different things going on. And if we want to help the muscles, we have to try to start eliminating some of the threat, if that makes sense. Okay. So, okay. So that's eliminating the threat. So that's kind of maybe like pain science, but is that also just like some people's muscles are like have a higher baseline of tension. So when they do contract that makes sex or any penetration more painful or. Um, so do you mean like that they, they live in a higher state of tension? Yeah. Yeah. Like their muscles are just, yeah, yeah a little bit more contracted. So well, people- Yeah, I think people can have shortened pelvic floor muscles because of something that their body has responded and kind of created this new baseline. Mm -hmm. So we definitely do see that. um, Absolutely. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting because not every patient's a little bit different with their response. And so treatment has to be customized, you know, for the person. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Or I guess it's like, you could also go in the direction of like, do you think it's part of it's teaching the muscles not to respond so forcefully to penetration? Like, is that the idea of that study too? Um, well, so I think that in, in terms of that study, I think it's just recognizing that the muscles do have a protective response for the body mm-hmm. and that there are likely other muscles in the body too that act in a protective way when there's something happening. And so I think recognizing that we can start recognizing our own response to yeah. things. And so- really validating to know that that's a normal yeah. response to something yeah. that's scary or ar- arousing even, you know, that's- that's very validating. Exactly. And, and, you know, and the hard thing for many people is that it, it can end up kind of being this cycle because, and sometimes it can start with just a painful vaginal exam, mm-hmm. that the vaginal exam was painful. And so the body, the, you know, the brain is really smart. The brain's beautiful. And so the brain can end up seeing something being inserted in the vagina as a threat. And, and so it responds by protection. And then that unfortunately can make it more uncomfortable when something's in the vagina and it kind of becomes a cycle for patients. Right. And I'll see this for patients when we think about sexual pain, that it, it can become so far into the cycle that some of my patients will feel like, gosh, it kind of gets to the point where even if they, you know, their partner might come up and like rub their back and immediately they're like, they feel themselves guarding, you know, and I, and I try to tell them that that's, your brain is amazing, that your brain is recognizing these patterns. And so what we have to do is help their body and their, their muscles and them as a person to, uh, to feel safe, you know, to decrease that threat. And, and 
when I say that, what I don't mean to imply is that they don't feel safe with their partner or anything like that, because that's something some patients will hear. And this is not the case, not the case. It's just that the brain has recognized that something being in the vagina is a uncomfortable thing. And so the brain naturally is going to protect against that. Um, So yeah. Well, I love that you said it's a good thing. I feel like I've always told my patients, like it's a natural response when the body is in pain, but I like that you phrased it as almost like, no, it's like a good thing for the brain to do that because it's a natural response to pain. And we just need to retrain it to understand when to use that signal or something like that. Yeah. Like that, that just like sounds like, again, almost more validating for a patient. Like we don't want to like shame our patients for the way their bodies are responding. And that just sounds like empowering for them. So I really like that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a good thing. I mean, it's, I I give my patients sometimes the example of, you know, if you came into the clinic and every time you came into the clinic, I punched you in the stomach Mm -hmm. that you, you would start preparing. Like you would, one, you may not be super excited to come into the clinic to see me because you would know that I was going to punch you. You know, you would, you might guard and brace against things. You might start even feeling anxious coming in to see me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same happens for people with exams or other things because their brain is amazing. And so Mm -hmm. the brain's like, huh, whenever something's inserted at the vagina, this doesn't feel great. And so they have this natural protection that we would do with any pain. Right. Okay. Well, so let's get into, okay. Now we've thought about like, what do we, you know, what do we think about when we see the words diagnosis on our script or the intake form? So for the initial session, for the initial eval, what are, you know, kind of the top things you want to make sure you either discuss or ask about or examine during a session? And I know that's, that, that, you know, top three things is not an encompassing list. Like obviously there's not everything you could do, but what are the really important things to you? So, I mean, the first thing for me always is that I want to hear their story. And that's a really big piece. Um, the, probably the most important piece for me, the very first visit, is that I can hear their story and I want it to be comprehensive. I want them to tell me everything that they want to tell me about what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if it takes our entire session and we talk for an hour and I postpone other things. That's fine to me because I want to hear them. And, and I want to know what they've been through. And so I want to know, is this something that they've been experiencing since they were a kid to where they noticed that... Um, that maybe the first time they tried to use a tampon, it was just terrible. Or, you know, they, I've had some patients even with other sensitivities around the vulva that they might say, I remember riding a horse and just not liking something against that tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to know their story and, and then how has it changed over time? So I want to know about their medical experiences. When did they first see someone for this? Mm -hmm. What, what did it look like? What have they tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked? I always ask people comprehensively too about other functions of their body. So I want to know about any orthopedic problems they've had, any surgeries. I want to know about their bladder function and their bowel function. I want to know about their sexual function. Um, So I want to have just this nice full picture of them and what their history has been related to all of this. Um, And then my goal the first visit is to, if if we have time and what, what it looks like, to find out what musculoskeletal contributors we have. And so I always do a really, a full body screen, looking at everything from how they move from their neck to their feet. Um, I assess their breathing pattern and, you know, other tests for their hips or uh, load transfer in terms of how do they, how do they transfer forces through their pelvis? Um, And then look more specifically at the pelvic floor. I think when it comes to pelvic floor exam, I always make the point to tell people that our, when we get to the pelvic floor PT um, exam piece. We don't have any goals for what the initial exam looks like once we get down to the vulva. And so what I mean by that is that I don't need to check their ovaries. I don't need to look at their cervix or anything like that. My goal is to get an idea of what's happening from a musculoskeletal standpoint around their pelvic floor. So for some people, the first day, we don't do any type of internal exam at all. For other people, we might just look at the outside or maybe just gently touch around the outside of their vulva. Other people, I might place my finger at the opening and kind of see how they respond and how their tissues feel and what their body feels like. And then other people, we might do a, a you know, a exam where the finger is inserted and moving and that. And so it depends on the person. And my goal always is to keep their discomfort low. Um, so we don't want to add to this feeling of that they need to guard and protect. And so what we want to do is just 
gently touch the tissues um, based on what the patient's comfortable with and wants to do in that session. Um, and that's how treatment should be too. It should be gentle and people should, um, it should not be an excruciating negative experience. Um, no. My goal always the first visit is for people to tell me that I was better than they expected me to be. Um, and I have a pretty good track record of that too. <laughs> but then I think, you know, the last thing I would say is that my goal is always to help them find their path towards healing um, mm-hmm. and, and start kind of building their team for them and what that looks like. Sometimes that comes after several visits and sometimes it comes the first visit to where we're talking and I might say, you know what, I really... I think you'd benefit from seeing a gynecologist who specializes in pelvic pain, or, you know, I think that it might be helpful for you to consider working with a counselor who can help you with this component, or, you know, I think that we need to go down the road of looking at some stuff related to nutrition or, you know, what, uh, there's so much. And so, and sometimes we kind of build that along the path of treatment too. Right. Absolutely. And that's the thing is, I think, you know, with public floor, there's so much you can do, especially with women regarding hormones, nutrition, stress, like their musculoskeletal system, there's all kinds of stuff. And I think one thing, because I have a student right now, so I'm trying to instill in her mind is that like, we do, honestly, the eval is not done on the first day. It happens every single time you come in, you know, or every single time the patient comes in, you're always educating them and you're finding more out about their story that now that you've made this, not even a small talk, but just made that rapport. Now they feel comfortable telling you X, Y, Z. And it's, you know, you're constantly reevaluating people every day. But, um, okay. So if we talk then about treatment and, and it's hard to answer this question, I'm sure just because every patient is different, but let's say a typical, like a very straightforward vaginismus case. Uh-huh. How would you walk me through the treatment of that? If I was your mentee or, you know, if you were just trying uh-huh. to explain to a lay person, how would you explain that? Well, so I think, you know, one of the big pieces that we try to do from a treatment standpoint is basically kind of like a graded exposure to the vagina of something being inside. And so that can be with a finger gently starting to gently touch the tissues with some gentle manual therapy hoping to desensitize those tissues. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So I, I try to kind of get away from the, you know, I'm going to manually stretch the tissues. I don't even love the term dilator because a dilator is a passive thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you think about dilation, you're taking this thing that doesn't open well and then dilating it like I, like a pupil dilation. And, right. and I don't think that that's what we're aiming to do for these Can muscles. Is there a um, I like the term vaginal trainer more. And I actually got that from Darla Cathcart. She loves the term vaginal trainer. And I like vaginal trainer because I think vaginal trainer feels nice. It feels, you know, it's a more positive word. It's um, that you're trying to gently train the muscles to, um, to lengthen, to decrease their sensitivity and their guarding. And so I think that gentle manual therapy can do that. I, I like to include patients within that. And, and sometimes it starts by helping them connect with that part of their body. And so it might start with them using a mirror to look at that part of their body and maybe identify parts of them, touch gently the parts around the outside. Um, it could include then them using their own finger to gently insert, depending on what they're comfortable with. Um, I do think vaginal trainers can be really, really nice. And, um, but I think that they need to be done in I think there's very different ways to do vaginal trainers with patients. And, um, I like to use them in a way that is more of graded exposure where you're just gently, you're not, you're not stretching the muscles to the point where the body is wanting to guard and protect by pain because that's what pain is, is it's guarding protect and protecting against this threat. And so we want to be sub threat. And that's what our manual therapy should be as well as with the dilators that were our trainers that were gently, just, um, just gently stretching the tissues in a way that the body is not guarding and protecting. So that's a big thing for me. Um, I do, um, I do always like to build a team for the patient. And so to really try to help them and screen them too, because sometimes there, there are other things going on. It's not only muscle, you know, people can have skin conditions that were missed that are contributing to their pain. They can have um, something like uh, vestibulodynia where they have high, you know, this, this hypersensitivity at the mucosa around the opening. And, and those things are very important to identify um, when someone can't, is struggling with insertion. You want to make sure that it's, that it's, not, it, it's not something more than just muscle. 
Right. Okay. So let's talk then, yeah, more complexly then. So you mentioned vestibulodynia and skin yeah. conditions. What other things for someone that's more complex would you maybe listen for, or screen for? What other like comorbidity, comorbidities or diagnosis you might hear with a more complex case of vaginismus? Um, so, you know, I do think the skin conditions are a big one. Um, so, you know, a lot of people worry about, this is backing up a little bit, but people worry about this too. This is, so I'm ready to learn. I'm excited. This, this, people worry about it. Yeah, people worry about the hymen, of course, always with this. And most of the time, the hymen's not the issue. However, occasionally it is. And so I think that that's why getting examined and having someone look at things is really, really, really useful. Um, I have had patients that their hymen was an issue for them and they needed to actually have procedure to help with that. But that's most often not the case. Um, people can have various skin conditions happening. Um, so there are things um, like uh, lichen sclerosis is a term that you'll hear, and which is an autoimmune um, condition that leads to uh, a whitening of the tissues. It can lead to some adhesions around the tissues. It usually is occurring in a state where the patient has really um, a decreased estrogen in their tissues. Um, so they'll get this kind of thinning of the tissues too. That's a very important one to catch because um, there is an increased risk of vulvar cancer for people who have lichen sclerosis. So it's very important for it to be managed. But there's other there's um, other lichen conditions. Um, I've had a lot of patients who've ended up having chronic yeast infections that mm -hmm. weren't diagnosed and need to kind of get that treated. Um, but, and yeah, and then... Um, and, you know, people could have, so I think in the postpartum period, we want to look at scars, but we want to make sure that there is healing that is, you know, healthy and all that taking place. Uh, vestibulodynia is something very important to screen for as well, uh, to make sure that we're, we're finding out why their tissues are hypersensitive. Now, people can have vestibulodynia that is related to muscles, where the muscles are contributing to irritation at the mucosa. That definitely happens. But there can be hormonal factors as well. Um, there are some, some people will have this neuroproliferative type vestibulodynia, which has been happening for them ever since they were, you know, a child. And they might, they need different inter different management. But, you know, I think if you're, a, if you're a therapist and you're listening, I think, you know, I, I always tell therapists that you don't have to know everything there is to know about dermatology for your patients. You just need to know when something isn't looking right. Mm -hmm. And so if you notice that, huh, these tissues look very whitened. Wow. These tissues kind of look adhered or there's a lot of dryness here or, you know, wow, these tissues are so sensitive and it seems more tissues and not muscle. That's where you have to connect with providers in your area who are really skilled pelvic pain, you know, clinicians who are, you know, vulvar dermatologists or things like that to refer patients so that they can be screened by someone who would help identify that. And I think that was like my question. So with lichens, so that often comes up with me because I feel like blatant lichens, you can tell, like you said, there's obvious like tissue changes. It looks atrophied. It looks thinner. It looks wider. But there's been times where I've been like, is that lichens? Because there's so much going on. There's there's a long history of pelvic pain. I've seen this person for a while. I'm like, maybe the tissue looks pale. Is that something where, you know, do you feel like you can usually really see lichens? Or if you're even questioning it, send them out. Well, you know, I'm not, I don't, my vulvar dermatology knowledge is not like, I'm not a vulvar dermatologist. I'm not a specialist. And so, you know, I think, I was very fortunate to attend a class by uh, Dr. Andrew Goldstein on oh, vulvar dermatology. Yeah. Yes. And it was like amazing yeah. and mind blowing. And um, so I would really highly recommend his course to anyone who is wanting to learn more. But that being said, even after his course, I, I don't know, but I always, I try to have a really open communication with the providers I work with. And so, you know, I'll call a provider and say, hey, um, I'm just noticing some whitening of this tissue or it just seems a little thin. These tissues just seem really sensitive. I'm not exactly sure what this is. Do you yeah. think it could be lichen sclerosis? Do you think this is something else? Can you take a look and tell me what you think? And, um, and because really the only way to diagnose that 100% would be to do a biopsy. Right. Um, uh, but I think that's where working with people who can really look into that and not being afraid to refer a patient out also. Yes. Is important. We just we can't know everything. That's not, you know, we have to know what we don't know is the important part. But okay, let's talk. Okay. I have a few questions about the vaginal trainers in, in regards to, because I think a lot of this, 
and I think you could help help with this in terms of, okay, it's a question that I hear a lot from other people is what do you do when you can't progress someone to the next dilator? Okay. With yeah. vaginismus. And I wonder, like, do you think that's something where they're like, okay, I can insert the fourth one in the vaginismus kit, but I can never insert the fifth one. Is that something where, do you think they need to? Like, what else should we be focusing on? Or how would you approach that problem? That's a good question. Um, so I think it kind of comes down first to how you do the, use the trainers with your patients. Okay. Um, and so I really like an active approach with the trainers. Um, I like patients to keep their discomfort at two to three out of 10 mm-hmm. um, and maximal while they're doing it. And so I don't, I, some people will say like, insert to what you can tolerate and leave it there and let it sit there and watch a movie. Like, I, I don't think that works well. I don't think that's what we're aiming to do with the muscles. And so I like people to, to keep it active spend 10 to 15 minutes. It's gradual insertion. Okay. It's uncomfortable. Let's pause there. Let's contract, relax. Let's breathe. Let's try to get it to go down. And then it, it becomes, it stays active while they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that approach helps with progression because once that trainer is totally comfortable, they go up to the next size and continue. Um, when someone has this kind of uh, situation like you're describing where they might be four is totally fine. Five might be, I, I can't get started. First, I want to look at what are their goals? What are they trying to accomplish? Because there's a trainer come trainer sets come with all of these sizes and not everyone needs all of the sizes. And so I, I try to first look at, okay, are they aiming towards comfortable exams? Because that's going to be a certain size. Are they aiming towards um, insertion? And if they're aiming towards insertion um, from a sexual standpoint, well, what does that look like for them? Um, so if, if they're wanting to insert a toy, then I want to see, okay, what size toy are you aiming towards? Or if it's a partner's penis, I want to know what size penis are we aiming towards? And, you know, and it really helped them functionally with that. Mm -hmm. I think some things that can help if someone does need to go to a larger size for them is um, one, using the trainer with them in the clinic, I think can be very useful. I do that actually with patients very frequently and give them some tips as they're, as they're using the trainer to help it to be more beneficial. I'll have them um, once they can insert so can the trainer. You and like tell us more about using uh, the trainers in the clinic? Cause I'll admit, I'm always nervous to do that because I always feel like I don't know where I am because it's not my vagina. So like, you know what I mean? Like I can't feel where it is or what I'm doing. So how do you yeah. use the trainer on the patient in the clinic or how do you feel good, like confident about what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, um, I, do, I have always used trainers with patients in the clinic. So before they use them at home, they always use them with me first. Hmm. I want to make sure they can do it in a way that is going to be a positive experience for them. Okay. I find most patients go actually too aggressive when they're self-treating. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, and, and part of it comes from them not fully understanding what's happening with their muscles. So it's like, well, if this is good, then this should be better. And that's not necessarily the case. And so I try to use it with them and, and start with me being the one to insert the trainer and then asking them, okay, tell me when you first feel any discomfort at all, what do you notice? Mm -hmm. And when they feel discomfort, we pause and I say, okay, so tell me what you're feeling. Do you feel tension? Do you feel pressure? Describe it to me. And, um, and then we might pause there. We breathe there. So I give them strategies for what they're going to do with the trainers. We always work for gradual insertion, but then we move the trainer. Then we, um, once we move the trainer in all directions and press the trainer in all directions, then we exit and we go in and out a little bit for them, which adds a little bit of friction. And then we move on to the next size. And I actually find many patients like using the trainer with me first and periodically using it. So I don't use it with them every time they come in, but periodically using it with me can help them progress. And sometimes there can be fear. So it might be a size four is working really well, but size five just looks so intimidating. And so sometimes if they use it with me first, they feel confident. Um, and even so where I've had some patients where they're, they'll be like, oh, I didn't want to ch- I made it through this one. I didn't want to try the next one until we did it together because Uh they don't trust, you know, where they know that I've shown them that I'm not going to hurt them and that we're going to keep their threat really low. We're going to keep discomfort really low while we do this. Um, And so I find that that's really helpful. Um, But that being said, sometimes patients do need extra help too. And so it might be that they need to work with a provider to try um, using some type of medication assistance. Um, So there are you know, things like, um, like, uh, 
Valium that can be compounded for vaginal use, or um, depending on what they have going on, gabapentin, or uh, so many other topical things that are used. There are also injections that some patients benefit from, like trigger point injections or Botox injections. And so it just, you know, I think when you plateau in care is a good place to say, okay, what else does this patient need to help them achieve their goals? So sorry, that was a lot of a lot of stuff around the same question. No, no, that was really helpful. And, and no, I feel like that would help me feel more confident in doing it is that is, is the greater exposure part um, in terms of like, well, that's easy. I don't have to know where exactly I am or like to feel it inside. I just have to know what the patient feels and they're going to communicate that to me and I need to be able to direct that. And that's, I think the important part is like the communication with the patient. But since you mentioned all the medical stuff too, because that's something where, you know, we're all going to have patients where it's, it's, it's beautiful. It ends in 12 to 16 weeks. They progress wonderfully. Sex no longer hurts. But for the plateaued patients, you know, as far as like Botox or trigger point injections, how do you make that decision on when to suggest that? Is that when they bring that up? Is that when you've plateaued and tried certain things? How do you kind of clinically process that? I mean, don't wait for them to bring it up because they may not even have the knowledge that something like that's an option. Um, And I also really try to stay within my scope of being a physical therapist and I work with providers who are really knowledgeable about these pieces too. And so for me, if a patient's plateauing and I feel like, gosh, we're working so hard, but we're just stuck here. That's when I am going to call their provider and have a conversation with them and say, okay, this is where we're at. It just feels like we're, we can't get over this next little hump. And, um, and that's where I have a conversation with them to see what, do you have some ideas on what we could we could provide. And depending on the providers you're working with, some providers, you know, they do Botox to the pelvic floor and they know how to do trigger point injections and they know all the medication stuff to where they're immediately going to be like, yeah, so then I can, let's try trigger point injections first. Let's try this. Let's try that. But then you're going to work with some providers who are like, I don't know, you know, (laughs) um, because they're not used to working with people with these conditions. And that's where I think we can tell them. and, um, And, you know, if you're a PT listening, that's where I like to kind of just give them my background of, I, I've worked with some providers in the past who've tried trigger point injections or Botox or vaginal Valium. And what do you think about that? You know, is that, is that something you think that might be useful for this patient? And, and then many providers, you know, they want to help. They're, they're often very open to ideas and, um, you know, or helping the patient find someone who could help. But I think when your patients plateau, that's when you definitely want to refer. And, you know, one note Dr. Goldstein made when I attended his dermatology course was he said he thinks that pelvic PTs um, often don't refer out for help soon enough. Like uh, he was saying, you know, he's like, you know, I think if patients are not responding as quickly, they'll make more progress if you kind of, if you refer them to get additional assistance, which I thought was a good reflective thing to consider with working with people. No, I can see that too. It's like we, as PTs, I think we're taught to think like we can fix it all. And it's like, especially in this field, I've learned like, that's just not the case. I'm just like a piece in that puzzle. But okay, last question because we've answered so many of them so easily already. I really appreciate that. But so if someone's listening to this and they have vaginismus, what's one thing that you want to like leave them with or want them to know? I think the biggest thing that I would say is that you're not alone, that the, there are research says five to 17% of people who are struggling with this. And um, so you're not alone and that there's hope available that yeah. you, you can I mean, reach out to someone. And if you work with someone and it's not going well, work with someone else. Not everyone, I fully recognize I'm not going to be the best fit for every patient in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's okay. That is. And as, so if you're working with someone and it doesn't feel like it's the right fit for you, try to find someone else and find someone who will partner with you and help you in this journey, because um, this can get better. You can get better. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's exactly it. Like it's going to get better is like the biggest thing here. And that 
Yeah, the li- like you will not live this way forever. Exactly. Yeah. But if, so uh, just how can people find you as far as like your clinic? Do you have a website? Like how do people, how do like the providers find that email that I was talking about? If you're on social media, give us that spiel and then I'll also put it in the show notes and stuff too. Yes, um, I, I would love to stay connected with people. So um, my clinic is Southern Pelvic Health and we are at southernpelvichealth.com. You can reach me there. Uh, my blog is jessicarealpt.com. I'm on Instagram as at Southern Pelvic Health, um, but I, I do classes for professionals. Um, I also partner with Sarah Reardon and we do classes for um, all people. So community-based classes. We actually just had a class on um, painful sex actually very recently. And so if this is you and you're listening, um, we have a great 90 minute class that gives you a lot of starter points to get started on. Um, and you can access all that via my website or connecting with us on Instagram. So and I so hope you can see She's going to be like on here too. Eventually I have contacted her. We just got, just oh, so she's coming. <laughs> awesome. She's my girl. We have a lot of fun together. So yeah. she also worked at Sullivan too, like way, you know, way back, okay, back in the day. It's a small world here. In it is. <laughs> but thank you so much, Jessica, for being on here today. I will say I have learned a lot and I love talking with people like you that are just so smart and have so much like great things to say and so much wisdom to impart. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Okay. I'll probably cut it there. Okay. But, okay. Was that okay? Oh, that was perfect. No, 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 no. That was so great. I feel like I was getting a little hypothetical when I was talking to them. I was like, ah, oh, Jessica, like rate it in for the person. So no, 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 that's exact. Honestly, that was exactly what I wanted. Cause I think like as a, just really quickly, as just someone who like wants to like, uh, learn more things, it's like, it is helpful to hear it from a perspective that you, where you can treat multiple people, you know, or like, or a lot of different kinds of, um, people within this diagnosis. So no, I think that was really, 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 really good. So I'm super excited. I'm going to send you a follow-up email after this um, just to tell you like when it'll be recorded. I know you're, you need to leave soon, but I want to take that picture real quick. Yes. But other than that, no, it was fantastic. Good. Okay, so hold on. Let me come here. All right, so smile. Okay. I'm trying to get him to look at the camera. I know, right? I was like, where am I looking? Okay. I will send it to you. How about that? Am I looking at the camera? You are looking at the camera. We'll take one more. Okay. That's better angle. Okay. One, two, three. That you are looking at the camera on that one. I'm not, but that's okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I'm thinking just real quickly, this is probably going to be posted either in end of September or mid-October most likely, but I'm going to send you like a a link and then like uh, pictures that I'll use on Instagram, all that kind of stuff so that you have a way to promote it too. Awesome. Thanks. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited. It was so good. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Hey guys. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, as always, please remember that the material and content discussed is general information that was discussed between two healthcare providers. It is not meant to be medical advice or to substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Thanks.